All right, how's everybody? Can you hear that okay up the back? Fantabulous. All right, let us pray and ask God to help us. Uh, I particularly appreciate prayer. I've been in hospital again this week. Uh, when you're getting over cancer, the body sometimes doesn't quite keep up with the mind, but uh, I've been a bit crook, but uh, I'm upright. So praise God and let's uh, look into his word. Father, as always, we depend, with, uh, depend upon you and we depend upon your strength to do the little things. And Lord, as I come to share your word today and to look into it and for all of us to look into it, I ask that you might meet us, that you would graciously, uh, even in weakness, teach us, that you would push us towards truth, that we might come to know in a greater sense who you are, who we are, and what your purpose for us really is. So I pray that you bless this time now, not for my reputation, but solely for the sake of Jesus. Amen. I don't know, I think God has a sense of humour. Uh, in coming to work with EU, as most of you know, the senior staff sort of divvy up uh, the different faculties they are going to work with. Now, if there was an ideal faculty for Malcolm to work with, it would probably be the lunatic fringe who plan on enjoying university but maybe not acquiring all the academic stuff that they should get. Uh, I'm not sure what faculty that would be and I'll, I'll get you to keep that to yourself unless <laughs> uh, we make any judgement calls. But it just so happened that God, in his sense of humour, gave me the faculty uh, to be involved with which is probably the least uh, connected with me in the sense of when I was joining up, I know nothing about this, this faculty. I joined up the Faculty of Science. Now, when, I just want to make it very clear here. When I've got up the front here, the church are heavenly people. It's not just the science faculty, okay, who is the heavenly people here. But I'm going to use, I, this is, this is uh, pretty average of me, but uh, I don't know much about science, but I love the science faculty. I, uh, we went on the weekend away and we had a great time and you know, these people talking about stuff, I've got no idea, you know, and then I saw Dave Arrington, he had a surfboard, I'm like, oh, maybe I can fit in with these people, uh, but it's all good. But, you know, even in my very limited knowledge, I remember taking physics uh, in about year 11, and as I mentioned before, all I remember was rolling those ticker tape trucks off the table and, you know, trying to get things, the Bunsen burners going and well, just all of that sort of fun, fun stuff, fun, hours of fun for the whole family. Uh, but I do remember these instruments. One is called, for those of you who aren't in the science faculty, okay, Dr. Gill or Professor Gill or Scientist Gill for a day is going to tell you, this one is called a microscope. Okay, yeah, uh, Joe Hayes is nodding ahead, that's great. Okay, but the microscope, you don't have to know much, you, but this thing, the basic idea is you get these little plates and bacteria or whatever you're going to look at, and you put it under this thing and you, and you look into it hence the funny looking eye up the top there, and it looks in and the, the light refracts or whatever and, and you get a blown up image of whatever's there. Uh, and again, I never knew quite what I was looking for. I'd look in there and I'd zoom it in, I'd zoom it out. didn't mean much to me. However, uh, I remember probably I would have been about, uh, let's see, I probably would have been about year three at school. I was in third class and it was Halley's Comet year. And I said to my dad, we need to get a telescope, Halley's Comet, only every, how many years? Oh, 76, oh, maybe it wasn't that bad at science, alright? Okay, somebody said 80, pretty close. Uh, uh, but here we go, I, I 
told my dad, look, we need to get a telescope. So he went out there to Target and got the biggest, or actually probably the smallest one available. And my dad probably knew fairly well that uh, my interest would wane, so he didn't invest uh, a bunch of money buying the Hubble telescope. He just got me one of these little you know, ones for the kids, and that's fantastic. And I remember going out there, and uh, it was the night, or one of the nights you, you could see it, and I remember Dad coming in and shaking us and waking us up saying, OK, kids, let's go out and have a look at the comet. And I remember being so knackered that I got out there and I honestly couldn't see a thing. Okay? I put it up to the sky and they're pointing in a direction and my brother could see it and my sister could see it and my other sister could see it. And I honestly just wanted to get back to bed. I put it to the eye. That's fantastic. And went back to bed. Okay? <laughs> But it's interesting, the one thing I do know, I don't know much about these these instruments, but I do know there's a purpose for zooming in. There's a purpose for zooming out. We've been going through the book of Ephesians and Paul, as he's been writing to the Christians in Ephesus, has been zooming in on some things that he thinks are important and critical to the Christian and then he's zooming out. Now, if we just stand back for a moment and zoom out and look at the book of Ephesians and where we're at... As we've been making our way through Ephesians, we discovered in chapter 1 that God was calling a people for himself. And the big picture to start off with was that God is to be praised because he is calling together a people for himself. And that is accomplished through Jesus and it is a guaranteed thing by the Holy Spirit. Then we moved last week and we zoomed into chapter 2, and particularly the first 10 verses. We're going to look at the second, uh, second section today. But as we zoomed in last week, we discovered our sinfulness. And today we're going to look at what we're going to zoom out and we're going to look at what it means to be Christian community and part of the church. But if I would encourage you, these first three chapters, what Paul is doing, looking back from a big picture, Paul is trying to zoom in and look at all these different things that we now stand back and zoom out. He's trying to present a view of the church. He's trying for us to think and to get our heads at least a little bit around what kind of a God we serve. As I told you, there are 43 imperatives or commands in the book of Ephesus. He only gives us one in the first three chapters. Why? Because he's not interested primarily in you. He wants to tell you about God. He wants to tell you about God's great plans and how they incorporate you. But he's going to wait until he gets to chapter 4 and then he's going to start by saying, as a result of thinking right and understanding these things, now we can move forward and we can start to apply these things. So that's where we're at in the book. So let's, last week, uh, you'll remember we zoomed in and uh, we looked at what it meant for us to be saved as individuals. Now, as we come to the passage today, verses 11 to 22, there's three basic divisions here in this, in this passage. First of all, in verses 2 to 13, uh, rather, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 13, the first two verses in this section, he is going to give us an assertion. He's going to make an assertion about the previous ten verses that he's made. As a result of that, he's going to look back and make a very clear assertion. Then in verses 14 to 18, he's going to move forward and he's going to say, let me just elucidate or let me just explain what I meant by that assertion. And then finally, in verses 19 to 22, he's going to to, uh, conclude it with a consequently. Here are the results. Here's what you need to think. 
So we go from assertion to explanation to consequence. And so that's going to provide the major movements here of our passage. Now, as you've opened up your passage, you'll notice that the word uh, therefore begins chapter uh, 2, verse 11. He's looking back here at the previous context where he's been discussing how individuals who were dead in sin can now be made right with God and now he's going to look back at that and he's going to make an assertion. And here's the the assertion, if I could summarise it for you, these verses. We who are far from God are now his people. This is the basic assertion that he's giving in these verses that he's going to expand upon but this is what he's talking about here. We who are far away are now God's people. Now, it's interesting, in the the previous context, he's made reference collectively to all of us being sinners. Uh, You remember in chapter 2, verse 3, all of us followed the ways of the world. Well, now he's going to change tact and he's going to actually make a division. He's going to say, I want to address Gentiles and Jewish people. And he's going to talk primarily here to the church in Ephesus and he's going to talk to Gentiles and he's going to say, what is the relationship now between the Old Testament people of God, the Jewish people or the the Israelites, the Hebrew nation, what is the relationship between that and the relationship now between the Christian community? And so he's going to make some discussion about things like circumcision and uncircumcision. He's going to talk about uh, these things to a, a group that is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, uh, we don't know when the problem started, but there uh, is, are many things in history, if you go back and you read different things, where you will discover that at the time of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles didn't have much to do with each other. In fact, uh, there's a trajectory, I think, in the New Testament, but later it's spelled out in the Jewish Talmud, that one of the prayers that says, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile nor a woman. Okay, not a super friendly prayer for most of us in this room. Uh, But that that was sort of the attitude. There was talk in rabbinic writings of if you go into a Gentile town, as soon as you leave it, wipe the dust off your feet. It's a visible sign Hey, you know what, Gentiles, you can leave your town with you. I'm better than that and I'm heading off. There was a great disdain for the Gentiles. They're also referred to as the nations. And the Hebrew concept of nation is is from the word goyim. It doesn't sound real good. You've got the Jews and then you've got the goyim. Okay, I am goyim, okay? I'm not Jewish by ancestry. I'm part of the nations. Uh, those, this word is used in the, the Hebrew scriptures often pejoratively of those who are ungodly. And here he's going to address the problem between those who are the circumcision or the elect people of God uh, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, and those who are Gentiles. Now to illustrate this at least a little bit, we've got today our own little group, Jewish people for a day, our own little nation, sitting down the front here. Okay, so uh, let, these guys are going to stay here, so uh, they're going to enjoy a few things today. They've got the, the Hebrew Scriptures, okay, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im and the Ketabim, the writings, the prophets and the Torah, the law. Okay, so they can chit-chat about that. You've got to read 
the other way around, okay? But you'll enjoy that, okay? And then just, you didn't bring candles and I didn't bring any, but you got the, a menorah if you wanted to light that up to remember the feasts, okay? And then you've got the family Haggadah, one of my favourites for Passover meal, uh, the Seder. You guys can enjoy that, okay? Because you're a special people. You are a special people. Now, sorry to the rest of you, but these people are very special, Okay? They're very special for a day. Now, I noticed when I, I came in, there was a little bit of a barrier here and several of you lovingly were told, I'm sorry, I can't sit here. Now, I'm going to ask how that made you feel. I saw uh, a certain Howie, uh, or a couple of Howies actually, who weren't too impressed, but, uh, and then some regular people who weren't impressed either. How did it make you feel? For those of you who were told you couldn't be part, sit down here, how did it make you feel? Where's some honesty here? Rejected. What's that? Rejected. Rejected, okay. Why can't I sit in those seats? What else? Tim, I saw your look, mate. What, are you, what were you thinking? Yeah, I'm pretty angry actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Daniel? And then we've got Tim over here. He's a proselyte. He's, he's not quite sure what he is. <laughs> okay. But when we think about today, the issues going on in the church, perhaps the proportion was almost the same as this. In fact, the early church in Ephesus uh, probably evolved from Christians going to Pentecost because when Paul turns up in the book of Acts, there were already Christians there. And it's probable they've also discovered a synagogue in ancient Ephesus probable there was a good amount of Jewish people there, but by and large the church was made up of Gentiles. Now he is going to remind these Gentiles that they too are part of the people of God. You see, for the Jewish people, and he's talking here again to to people who have come to trust in Messiah, so for the, the Jewish people or the Hebrews, this would be coming to have the belief in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Okay, and he's talking to Jewish Christians and he's talking to, to uh, Gentile Christians. And he begins by saying, Therefore remember, formerly you, the majority of you Gentiles, by birth called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, but then he qualifies that, done in the body by the hands of men. He's going to start off and he's going to say, uh, there are people out there, the Old Testament people of God, were demonstrated or rather proved their allegiance to Yahweh through circumcision and being part of God's people. And he's going to say, uh, as we go through this passage, that there is a greater understanding of God's people with the arrival of Jesus Christ. And he's going to say that even the circumcision was made by hands. This, this phrase here, made by hands, actually it's one word, kairopoietos, made with hands. In the Old Testament, it was used of humans fashioning idols. In the New Testament, it's used in Mark's Gospel of people making and building the temple. It's always got to do with humans doing something with their hands. But as we know, and as we know from Romans 2 and elsewhere, God is interested not just in human physical things, but God ultimately is interested in the heart. And so he starts off here and he says that before all of us, the majority of us, the Goyim, the nations, as a collective group, not just as individual sinners, but as a collective group, 
We were in a bad state because we were not originally part of God's people. Now, to demonstrate that, he is going to give us several problems. He's going to say, here are several reasons why you are not part of God's people or the ancient people of God. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do now, we're just going to take a minute or two minutes and if you've got a Bible, uh, want, want it open. If you don't have one, you might want to sit next to somebody. But get together with uh, one or two people next to you and jot down, talk, talk amongst yourselves, jot down some of the things from this passage, uh, particularly verse uh, 12, that tell us about our rotten state as Goyen. So go ahead, talk to the person next to you, jot down two or three things and also be helpful if you try and work out what they mean. You Jewish people don't have to do it. You Jewish people have got nothing to worry about. We can, we can we know, chit-chat. We know already. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim. I'm just trying to find my notes from yesterday now. Okay, you want to bring it together. We've got several problems here, except for our friends down the front. They've got no worries. But uh, they're, they're just relaxing. The rest of us here, according to this passage, apart from Christ, what were the problems that we faced? What were some of the problems? Throw some out there. Without hope. Okay. Okay. What does that mean? Anybody? Couldn't go to the temple and stuff? Yeah, there's certain things there. What what else? What are other things in this passage? Separate from Christ? What else? Strangers? Yes? Strangers to the covenant of promise? Without God? Okay, I think we hit, hit uh, pretty good ones here. I like to, uh, I was, the first time I read this, I thought, without hope. I'm like, no hopers. You ever heard that phrase? My dad used to say, oh, you know, that bloke's a bit of a no hoper. You know, I look at this passage and it tells me, hey, you're a goyim. Before Christ, that's what you are, a no hoper. Uh, but there's some things here. Let's walk on down through the passage. First of all, is that we are separated from Christ or the promised Messiah. The word Christ is not a last name. Uh, I met somebody once who who thought Christ was uh, simply the surname of Jesus, such as Malcolm Gill. There is Jesus Christ. You look up, you want to look him up in the phone book, you look under C. Okay. When we think of the name Christ, it is actually a title. And the title is a Greek form of the Hebrew term Messiah, Meshiach which means anointed one. And going back to the psalm, Psalm 2 and elsewhere um, in 2 Samuel and other places, it was promised long ago to the people of Israel, to our friends down here, that there would be a Messiah who would come from them to deliver them. But for the Goyim, even though in a broad sense we were meant to be included in what the nation was doing, most of us had no hope or orientation that there was a promised Messiah. 
Second thing, alienated from citizenship. Now, there's two things that, that are going on here. Uh, the, the first of all, this can be taken literally that we weren't citizens of Israel um, and that's probably true. There were people from Ephesus were from Ephesus. They weren't from Israel and most of them probably had no desire to move there. Uh, what's probably going on, he's using, I think, here the, a term uh, in the sense of a metaphor. Uh, you see, Ephesus and the Ephesians were familiar with the, the Greco-Roman world and they knew about city-states and they knew about uh, Rome as an empire. And to them, the idea of being a citizen was the idea of belonging and having identity with somebody or someone. And here he's going to say, we were alienated from the citizenship of God's people. But further, he's going to go on and say, we're strangers to the covenant, uh, or to the covenants, plural, and it's uh, the, the plurality of covenants has raised some discussion which I'm happy to chat with you afterwards about. But I think the idea here is that they didn't grow up, we didn't grow up as Gentiles with the Hebrew Scriptures. You see, these people down the front here, they were advantaged that they had a glimpse. In Torah, they had a revelation of what God is like. Uh, we're going through the sort of book of the year, Exodus. In Exodus, you get a glimpse of God's character, who he is. And obviously we've discovered that we get a greater understanding with the arrival of the Messiah Jesus. But the Hebrew scriptures were valuable. But for those of us who didn't have the covenants, we didn't know the promises, we were strangers to them and we had no hope. That's what he says here. We were without hope. And the idea is just sort of floating around not knowing the purpose of our existence. And related to that, he says, we were without God. And it's an interesting term that he uses here. The, the Greek term for God, as many of you know, is theos. You put an alpha in front of that, atheos. What's that sound like? Atheist. Okay, no God. That's the term he uses here. We were without God. Now, the funny thing was when uh, the Christian community and the Jewish people living in that day, they were actually called atheists. If you're a Christian, you were, you were probably the one deemed atheist because they believed in many gods in the Greco-Roman world. And for you to say, I believe in the one true God, they, they would say to themselves, one God? Eh, you, may, you basically don't believe in any, you atheist. Okay, and uh, nowadays the, the title has sort of changed a little bit. But here, Paul is actually going to use the term a little differently and he's going to use it as a Jewish person saying that the Gentiles, you were without knowledge of the one true God. So again, what he does in chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, he paints a pretty bad picture. There it was individuals, now it's us as a collective group and as a corporate people except for our friends down the front. But then he goes on in uh, verse 12 and he makes a few, uh, rather verse 13, and he makes a few helpful for us uh, comments and assertions. And again, this would be more reflected in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, where he focuses on the grace and the love and the compassion of God to individuals. Now he's broadening that out here in this section to us corporately. You'll notice some of the contrasts. Now, 
verses formally. He says, but now in Christ, again that word but, death, it's one of the best words in the Bible, okay, bad picture, you've got five privileges that you don't have, death, but, he says, uh, nuni death, but uh, now, okay, it's a great uh, comparison, but now in Christ you were once far away, we were once that, he says, formerly you were that, but now you are this. He makes another contrast in this passage. We're in Christ versus separated from Christ. Again, talking here primarily collectively, but he's going to say we're in Christ. Just a few verses earlier, separated from Christ. We're not in sin. We're not in trespasses. We're not without Christ. We are now in Christ, even though we were once far away. And that brings us to the third contrast that he paints in this passage being far away versus being near. And Lincoln, A.T. Lincoln, is uh, is a very fine commentator on the book of Ephesians, has observed that in the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament writings, the term far away was often used of the Gentile nations, where near almost consistently is used of the Jewish people or the nation of Israel. So we who are far away, we were far away from God, he says here now, are now his people. That's basically the assertion that he gives here. But then he moves into this second section, verses 14 to 18, and here he's going to really extrapolate on what he said. And you can tell that because, again, he uses this little word, for. For he himself is our peace. Now, it's, uh, again, interesting. I I don't get into science and, and the little, you know, the the microscopes and I, I don't know math formulas but one of the nerdy things I like is prepositions. Okay? And particularly these little Greek words and you probably think nerd, nerd, nerd. And that's okay. Everyone has a hobby. Alright? Mine is irregular Hebrew verbs and uh, Greek prepositions. Okay. But here, alright, uh, here he starts off once again with this term for but the actual subject in English is not the word for, actually the word for is not the first word of the Greek sentence. It's the, the personal pronoun he. He himself is our peace. Now, back it up if you would and go, you look in verse 4, but because of his great love for us, it says in the NIV, God, who is rich in mercy, yada, 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 he goes on. God is actually the subject of that sentence. In the Greek. And it's funny to me that he'll talk about our depravity, our bad situation, but in verse 4 he'll say God intervenes and God's actions become the focus for the next few verses. Here, likewise, when he gets to verse 14, he's going to put this, this preposition, uh, personal uh, pronoun rather, right at the start of the sentence to emphasize Jesus accomplishes it. The emphasis is him, not us. Look at what he does. And so he says, for he himself is our peace. Now, most of you know that the Old Testament concept of peace was the idea of shalom. It was a positive thing. It was the idea of blessing. It was the idea of wishing well upon somebody. Uh, the Greeks and the Romans, they were a little rougher. They, they had the term peace, which usually meant the absence of war. And that is the idea here in this passage. So what he says here, he's going to use this, this picture of peace. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one. The Gentiles, the Goyim, who believe in Jesus. 
He is going to say, you are now, and I can move this stick away, okay, and you don't have to sit here, but you can if you want afterwards and make you feel better. But all of us now are part of God's people. He will say that there is no difference. He'll say this later on, he says this in the book of Galatians, but he'll say in Christ, even in this passage, he preached to those who were far away and he also preached to those who are near. But now God in his wisdom makes this church, we call it the church, and he's going to call it the church later on in the book, one people, God's chosen people. And how does he do this? How does he make the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers come into this harmonious existence? And this, this term one is going to come up time and time again throughout the book. How does he reconcile the two? Well, first of all, he talks about the barrier or the dividing wall. Now, we need to ask, what is the barrier or the dividing wall? Now, there are a couple of suggestions here. What is it that, that Jesus has destroyed or abolished? Uh, there's a couple of suggestions. First, people think that the barrier or the dividing wall of hostility is the curtain in the temple. You'll remember when Jesus died on the cross, the, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom and as a result people had access now to God. The symbolism in Mark's Gospel and elsewhere is that now all people had access to God. Some people think that what he's talking about here is that that has been, that has been ripped, it's been destroyed, and now we all have access to God. Uh, the only problem with that is not very many Jewish people got to go inside the curtain. In fact, it was only one person on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, that could do that. So I don't think that's likely. He's addressing here a con- conflict between Jews and Gentiles. And even the, the Jewish people didn't get to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay. Second is the balustrade in the temple. And here we've discovered in the writings of Philo and Josephus that in the Temple Mount area, this balustrade was this wall that reached probably about a metre and a half or four, four feet in the old, the old school measurements. And this, this wall, they found inscriptions on it, was designed to keep the Gentiles out. Now, we've got our own, our own balustrade in the city at the moment, okay, with the, with the APEC deal going on. The idea is we want some people to drive down this road and we want the rest to get locked in traffic for two hours, okay? But there, there's, a, there's a, a method to their madness and they're doing it for a purpose. And some people think that here Paul is saying, no, 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 there's, there's not a place for the, the outer courts just for the Gentiles and the inner place just for the special people. Okay, that, that temple uh, wall has been done away with metaphorically, as it were. Now, that's a, a possibility. In fact, there's, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 21, Paul is arrested and accused of taking a Gentile past that wall. But the problem with this view is that most people in Ephesus had never been to Jerusalem. They'd never been to Israel, so this metaphor would have been quite hopeless to them. They wouldn't have had any problem uh, with any, or any tension with Jewish people over this issue. So here, here are the two most popular views. The misuse of the law. The, it says here, by abolishing in his flesh the law and its commandments. Most people think, or many people think, that the problem here is that these good people in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people, they were given the scriptures to be used as a stepping stone so that the nations would come to them and seek to worship their one true God. But what happens, we find in the rabbinic writings that they refer to their traditions 
as a fence or a hedge around the law. So they come up with all sorts of traditions designed to protect our understanding of the Old Testament. But as such, it kept most of us at bay. And so some people think that that's what's going on. Why others think it's the use of the law itself. And they would say that the law itself, abolished might be too hard, they would argue, but the idea is of being rendered uh, inoperative or nullified. And here the picture would be when Christ comes, there is no need to go to the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament uh, commandments looking for light because in Jesus we have the, the law in its fullest expression. Now, whatever the dividing wall is, and it's probably one of the, the two uh, down the bottom, the picture is still the same. The idea is that Christ gets rid or he destroys whatever was separating us so that all people come to Christ the same way. That's why it says, uh, he came, verse 17, and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father. He doesn't say you get better access and you guys get second rate access. Okay, there's no, uh, you get an A pass and you guys get a backstage pass. Okay, no, in this he says that all people must come to God and it's accessed through the Spirit, by the one Spirit. And then finally, he reflects on this and he gives us this, this consequently statement in verses 19 to 22. And here it's, it's fairly straightforward. He says, we are God's people. So he gets to the end of his explanation and says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. You know, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a family of four kids and I remember going to Lithgow High School and I, I, I'd see my mates and uh, one or two of my mates, it was always the kid who had money to go to the tuck shop. Okay, there were some kids who, I don't think their parents ever made them lunch, but they'd always have the sausage roll and, you know, they'd get the M&Ms and it's like wretched people, you know. But there was, I remember back in those days, I would come to school and I was from a bigger family. Uh, when the moon was blue, okay, I might get some money to buy a sausage roll. Okay, but that was, that was about it. But I remember in those days, I really wanted a pair of these shoes, Adidas. They were called Adidas Campus and they were these white shoes, cool, okay, with these little blue stripes on the side. Adidas. Okay, and I remember going to school and, and I thought, man, I'm going to get a pair of those. And then every time, it was time to get some new shoes. Again, coming from a bigger family, hey, mum and dad, why don't I get some Adidas Campus shoes? And they'd look at their budget and they'd say, son, we're not going to get those. And so I'd get like some no-name brand, that, you know, you know, cross, you know, cross Freddy brand or something. And say, you never heard of it, you know. And it, it might have, instead of blue stripes, it had green stripes. And it just didn't look the same. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to be part of the cool people, to be part of the campus shoe wearers? But you know what? When we come to the people of God, the language is gone to great lengths in chapter 2 to say, you are God's people. You're not second class citizens. You are in fact his children. He says family. He uses the term household here. Again, the imagery that we've gone over before is the picture that we've been welcomed as God's children. And finally, he uses this metaphor that we are a dwelling place or a temple. Uh, the Jewish people, they had the Temple of Solomon in its glory days and this was later 
fixed and redone by Herod. Uh, the Ephesians had the temple of Artemis. They knew about temples. But now in the person of Jesus, he is the temple. He is the draw card. He is the one where we come and have access to God. And he's going to say, now the church collectively is the place where God lives and God dwells. So what does this mean to us? Here's a couple of things, food for thought. First of all, those of us formerly far away from God should pause and thank God that he came near to us. I think the whole purpose, he hasn't been specific in applications yet, but all of this truth about our identity and who we are in Christ should stop and cause us to slow down with life no matter where we're at and say, God, I don't deserve to be part of your household. I don't deserve to be part of your people. I don't deserve to be your dwelling place. But I thank you that in grace I am anyway. Second, we should never use the good news as a barrier. This is the mistake the Israelites made. They had the Hebrew scriptures that were for life, but they used them to keep people at a distance. So they said, we've got the scriptures. We know what God expects from us. We're better than you. And they held it in front of people, not as a stepping stone to tell the good news, but as a barrier. And friends, I would suggest that often Christians can fall into that exact same boat. Oh, I'm a Christian. I don't sleep with other people. Oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, oh, yeah, I don't go and see those sort of movies. I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. Oh, you do that. And often we don't come with our Hebrew scriptures, but we come to non-Christian people. And rather than using our lives and our scriptures to generate discussions about life, we often superficially think that we're better than other people. I think the barrier that we can overcome, that we might need to be aware of, uh, is this barrier that lords it over people. That's what the Jewish people of the Old Testament did. But finally, knowing who we are should shape how we live. This truth should be more than just, okay, that's interesting, Malcolm, I've learned a, a Hebrew word today, or I, you know, I saw a menorah. Okay, this is not just information. This should jog us and move us to think about who we are as God's people and as a response that should overflow into how we live. Let me pray that God would make these truths real to us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you do want to teach us and I pray that we would be obedient as we follow you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.